How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Hello there, welcome to another episode of uh, How I Got Here. This is uh, Motio Group and FocusWise uh, weekly podcast where we get the inside stories on travel and transportation. We have done uh, over a dozen of these now, so uh, regular listeners will know the format. And, uh, and uh, we're looking forward to this week's guest, who is none other than Fritz Demopoulos. Um, uh, some people don't need an intro. Uh, we recently we recently interviewed uh, Steve Kauf, who definitely didn't do uh, we didn't do an intro for him. But we are going to do a short one for Fritz here because uh, some people may not uh, know him. He's a regular on the conference circuit, but we will do a, a little bit of an intro. So Fritz Demopoulos, um, more recently, has been the founder of uh, Queens Road Capital, uh, an investor in many a business uh, over the last uh, eight and a half years or so. But prior to that, and I, I guess one of the intriguing things that we're looking forward to hearing from Fritz about. Uh, he was the CEO and one of the co-founders of uh, Tunard.com, which is the uh, Chinese, uh, it was uh, the, the largest travel internet portal in China, uh, had lots of backers and was eventually subsumed into other businesses. So that's where we're, we're coming at things today. So uh, first of all, uh, a very warm welcome to you, Fritz. Thanks for joining us on how I got here. Hey, thanks, Kevin, and thanks, uh, you know, David. It's, it's it's great to be here, and I'm a big fan of, of both companies. Okay, great. So thanks ever so much. So as with uh, regular listeners will know, as always, we start with the, um, which we hope is a very simple question, but can you tell us how you got here? Yeah, sure. Um, I, th- I think, um, you know, without rambling too much, um, I'm an American, but I've been living in the Asian region for 22 years, and... You know, I set up my first company in 1999 that was in the sports business. So it wasn't even in travel, but, you know, SoftBank was a big investor in, in that business. And, you know, we did fairly well. And, you know, Hutchison Mompo acquired us and all that. And so, so that was my first taste of the entrepreneurial lifestyle. And, you know, me and my co-founders of that sports website, including CC Zhuang and Douglas Koo, um, and, and, and obviously you guys know CC because he's spoken at Focusrite as well. Um, you know, we were thinking about, you know, what's our next startup? You know, we got to do another show, right? You know, we, like we need a second act. And we started thinking about and racking our brains. And, um, and one of our big inspirations was, hey, you know, what's Google's biggest revenue vertical? And this was back in, you know, mid-2004. And lo and behold, we realized that travel was a big revenue vertical for Google. And so we thought, hey, if, 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 if Google is such a big company and that travel is their biggest revenue vertical, could we create a better mousetrap and really take on the likes of Google? Um, and of course, and you know, you could, you could argue the largest or the second largest market in the world, China. And so, you know, we put our you know minds together and put our own capital down and that's how we set up Chunar. And, you know, and for, and, and kind of for those listeners, who don't know, um, you know, Chunar means where are you going in Mandarin Chinese. So it was like the perfect name, five letters, couple of vowels, made total sense. And, um, you know, we started out, we were a bit slower um, than, than maybe we would have liked. Um, you know, the uptake wasn't as great, but then, you know, that business eventually, you know, took off and we were able to control a huge part of the Chinese travel market. And um, unfortunately, you know, we had some success. Our investors made some money. Employees did very well, and um, it, it was great for all of us. Okay, so uh, thank you very much, Fritz. Right, so uh, there's lots of elements there that we can dive in over the course of this week's show. So, um, but I actually want to go back prior to 1999, which was the first business that you co-founded. I mean, you, you, you were a media guy, for want of a better phrase. You kind of came from my world. You worked at News Corp. Um, what did you learn? in the kind of the media world that you later applied perhaps to Tunar because, you know, Tunar was a, essentially a media company in terms of the business model, arguably. So, I mean, is there anything that you learned from that period of the couple of years that you were at News Corp that you thought, okay, that's, that's going to be useful for how we set things up? Or was it because geographically it was very different or you know, the, the industry was very different that there aren't any learnings from that? 
Oh no, certainly there's some learnings. Um, and you know, I was I was very fortunate to you know meet Mr. Murdoch, and you know he told me a couple things which 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 stuck in my mind today. And, and one of those was, hey Fritz, don't you think we should push the push the envelope a little bit? You know, why are we so conservative? And I was like, God, that's amazing that you know a titan of the media industry was just focused on pushing the envelope and being aggressive and. You know that I think um, was a was real was a genuine motivation to you know really you know take control of my life and 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 and, and by the way CC was working for the company too by the way right yeah. so since yeah, we were yeah. both at News Corp at the time right it was like and, and you know one of the funny stories was I mean how did I meet CC my co-founder well this is a company now. So, so obviously at companies, people don't work hard. It's only at startups. They work hard <laughs> and it was late at night and there was only two guys in the office, me and CC. So of course I go to the other side of the office. Hey, so what are you doing here? <laughs> He's going, what are you doing here? <laughs> we started talking and then we started brainstorming and, and of course we're like, you know, we got to do something more than this. Right. Um, but, um, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, you know, I, 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 I think that was one of the things I really learned from Mr. Murdoch and the News Corp empire is, you know, we have to take risks. We have to be entrepreneurial. Now, I think I would throw out that one of the things that maybe I had to unlearn was in, in, in the media industry, you know, there's this Chinese wall, no pun intended, between publishing and editorial. And when we set up Chunar, we had that Chinese wall. I mean, publishing, you know, how do we make money and editorial, what's good for the consumer? And what we've discovered over the years is there's a little bit of a blending between those two sides. It's not as clear cut as maybe um, I thought it was. Um, and, and, and that was probably one of the things that I had to unlearn. And, 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 you know, just to give you a couple of examples, you know, you know, we have listings and many of those were paid for. Some of those were free. And it was just kind of finding that right balance between free versus paid. I mean, you know, obviously the guys at Kayak and, and, you know, Steve Hafner, you know, he's obviously a, like a well-respected executive and entrepreneur um, on his view at the time. And of course he communicated that to us was, you know, everything's paid for. And that's our whole view. Everything is publishing. Mm. Um, and we had talked to some other entrepreneurs and they were like, are you kidding? It's got to be, you know, everything's got to be editorial. You've got to think about the consumer. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I think we kind of struck a balance between those two. So it was a little bit, it, it was kind of a gray area, but it worked for us. I mean, before David comes in, just a, a quick follow up on that, really. I mean, how, how quickly did into the history of Tunas did you, did it take for you to decipher that you needed to kind of, uh, as you say, unlearn some of those, some of those kind of Chinese walls, as you put it? You know, I think the first three or four years of Chunar, we bubbled along. Um, we didn't know the industry that well. In fact, both Cece and I and, and our third co-founder, we didn't know anything about the travel industry. And we didn't know what those acronyms meant. And so we were learning and we we're making silly little mistakes. Mm. Um, you know, one funny story was, um, you talked about Steve Kaufer earlier. Um, I remember sitting next to him at a conference and, and he said, hey, and I told him, hey, you know, I work for this company called Chunar. I'm a founder. And he said, yeah. And he goes, yeah, I'm a TripAdvisor. And I asked him, so what does TripAdvisor do? <laughs> I mean, you know, was, and of course, he looked at me like, you can't be serious, can you? <laughs> um, but I mean, meaning, you know, I, I, I think that's just reflective of, you know, we were new, young, but, you know, motivated to change an industry. And, and, and along the way, those first few years, we made some silly mistakes, but not just mistakes, but, but we were also trying to understand, you know, what, what would work and what, you know, what was the nature of a genuine marketplace, which is what we ended up becoming. And that meant things like how we priced our product, this differentiation between publishing and editorial, um, and just a range of other factors. Hey, Fred, it's David here. So thanks for hey, joining David. us. Um, I'm gonna, you know, address the elephant in the room here. You're a, a Westerner who decided to start multiple companies in China, and I, I remember when we first met. That was like, you know, obviously one of the first things that stood out to me is that you've had a lot of success in a way that, um, you know, most 
well, Western companies have definitely not. You know, Uber being the most recent example of someone who's retreated and not been able to kind of crack the cultural code. Um, you know, two-part question. Why did you decide to, to move to China and, and, and try? And two, how, how did you kind of think about, um, you know, balancing, uh, you know, being a Westerner in, in uh, Chinese culture? I guess I didn't think about it too much. I suppose if I did, I never would have done it, right? Um, yeah, saying like the joke in entrepreneurship, right, is if you mm-hmm. analyze the risk too much, then you probably don't do it, right? Um, no, it, it was like, um, I'll be honest with you, I didn't think I'd be 15 years in mainland China. I thought I'd be a couple of years and then I'd go back to the States or, I don't know, do something else and, you know, like do something silly like work for a company, right? Um, but then what I think I realized was, hey, like you can't select the time or the location of your startup. And I always wanted to set up a business. And if the stars aligned, then, you know, you have to do it kind of regardless of where you live. Um, and so, and so basically in 1999, when I set up my first company, it was like, well, you know, if the stars were aligned, I knew some people, I think I was probably 70% of the way there. Meaning, you know, in, in, in order to set up a company, right, you need some resources, people, some insights, whatever it was. And I felt I was 70% of the way there, which is probably the key point. If I think if you're 100% of the way there, you're probably, it's probably too late. There's probably going to be a bunch of other people doing it. And so you're going to get slaughtered. And maybe if you're only 20% of the way there, then you're probably going to get slaughtered because you just don't know anything. And so I, I think I was probably 60, 70% of the way there. And that was probably the right choice. Um, um, but what I would add is um, I really believe, and you have to believe this if, if you're me, <laughs> so think about it, right? I'm, I'm sitting in China, I'm not Chinese, and, 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 I, and I believed, and I, and, and I thought about this a lot, that to achieve, say, top 1% of success, um, it doesn't really matter where you are in the world. I could be in Milan, Italy, or Berlin, Germany, or New York, or Orange County, where I'm from, achieving 1% of success, the probability is going to be the same. And if you believe the probability is the same, then you might as well pick a place that's really interesting. And in the late 90s, in the, you know, early to mid 2000s, China you now was one of the most interesting places in the world. So why not do a business there? Very cool. Well, so how did you think about delegating then what you, you had Two, if, correct me if I'm wrong, two local Chinese co-founders. How did you think about what you delegated to them and what you took on as your own responsibilities? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so they say that in, in, in an amazing entrepreneur um, has to be self-aware. You know, we have to know our limitations. And in fact, I think studies were done at Stanford or I, for some reason, Stanford's the benchmark for all things entrepreneurship, right? Um, but our... And, but, but anyways, you know, the, I think there was a study at Stanford that somehow indicated that uh, like the top trait of an entrepreneur was to be self-aware. And it was pretty easy for me to be self-aware because I'm not Chinese, I'm not a tech guy, and I'm not a travel guy. So it was pretty easy to understand what my limitations were, which was everything. Um, and so it was pretty easy to delegate. I just delegated everything. <laughs> um, um, and, and, um, and, and luckily... You know, my co-founders, one was an, an excellent advertising guy and another CC was a great technologist as well as a great leader. And, you know, we um, kind of divided up that way. I was the CEO because the CEO gets to delegate everything and not do much. Um, <laughs> um, and then, you know, CC working on technology. Doug had, um, you know, sales and, you know, some advertising. And then, of course, we had some key early employees that were at the sports site, by the way. They were also at the sports site. And, and like they came in and one eventually became the COO of the company and did very well for us. Um, and, um, you know, so it was just basically like that. I mean, now, now does it mean that I did nothing? Well, you know, like I view that, you know, the CEO's role in many ways is to extract resources from the external environment, meaning you have to get the money, you have to get the key hires, government relations, some industry PR, managing your board, building a board of advisors and, 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 and other experts, maybe bringing in some key technologies, you know, i.e. pulling in resources from the external environment. Those are all resources. And, and I kind of felt, 
hey, that was my role as the CEO. Do that, bring it to the table, and then have everyone else, you know, work with that to, you know, build an amazing business, which is what they did. Very cool. So I wanted to segue a little bit into, you know, what the difference is between China when you started in China now. And I was in Shanghai a few weeks ago, and I remember one of our partners said they uh, work nine, six, and I, and I thought they meant nine to six. And what he meant, no, was nine hours a day, six days a week. And I think there's a huge, been a huge cultural change uh, in China, uh, and it's become a lot harder to start a business. And so, you know, do you think you'd go about it the same way today that you did, you know, almost 20 years ago? I don't know. You're right. I mean, I mean, you know, environments change. I mean, there's more office buildings in China. There's more capable people. And so, you know, we have to adapt and our angle might be different. And, you know, what we contribute might be different. Like it used to be, I mean, I wouldn't say it was easy, but, you know, like Woody Allen said, right, 80% of success is showing up. And I think in the 90s, it was probably that way. Look, I'm Woody Allen. Look at me, right? <laughs> you know, um, and, you know, maybe nowadays, you know, it's, it's, it's probably, hey, hey, Kevin, I think that's your dog, by the way. Um, you know, now I think it's, um, you know, maybe, um, you know, 40% of, of, of success is showing up. and. And 6% is, you know, hard work and being smart and all that. But yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. Things have changed. It's more competitive. Um, so yeah, I, I would probably have to do things differently. I mean, and, and keep in mind, you know, that 996 thing, it's true. People work hard. Um, I don't know if they work efficiently, but they certainly work hard. Um, and, you know, my friends who have managed teams in China and San Diego and Silicon Valley and New York have said, yes, it's true. Maybe we don't have the 996 culture in the United States, but there are some, you know, other redeeming factors. Like people are, tend to be a little bit more efficient, um, maybe a little bit more rules-based. And if, and, you know, China is a relationship-based society, whereas the United States is a rules-based society. You know, usually rules-based systems can scale a little bit better. They can handle complexity a little bit better. Whereas a relationship-based model, you know, sometimes it breaks down when things get more, you know, complicated. Although a relationship-based model is exceptional when things are highly dynamic. And so maybe, um, you know, the 996 is because like people are all focused on all this relationship stuff. Um, um, and you know what I would add is, I mean, as we all know, and you know, and obviously David, you know, you've run businesses and like, I know you have another startup in New York right now and, you know, it, it's... I mean, I mean, every entrepreneur works a lot, but I, I think the reason why it's such an exhilarating experience, at least, at, at, at least if you're the business owner, is the wide variety of things we do. Right? You're talking to a publicist, a journalist, you're hiring someone, you're dealing with your team. You know, I mean, like we're rarely just in the office, right? We're doing all this other stuff, which is like so many interesting touch points. And and if you happen to be a social animal, it's just amazing, right? You know that variety well, they, and. Um, so like it doesn't seem like work at all to me, you know. Tell, tell us, Fritz, um, when you created the company, how were you received, given that the concept was fairly new, how were you received within the wider uh, travel community there in China? Yeah, well, it's... Um, was it warmly? You know, was there's it, three... Uh, no, it wasn't. I mean, it was, it was, it was more like people thought I wasn't very smart. Right. Um, so, so, um, you know, and I have to admit, you know, I, I think it's also, I think it's a similar experience you get in the States, but you get people make three comments to you every time you take a risk in life, whether it's starting a business and travel or whatever. So the first thing people tell you is, you know, Fritz, you're a nice guy. That's the first thing they tell you. You're a nice guy. Now, what they really mean is, I don't think you're capable. <laughs> That's what they say, right? So basically, you, so, so, like, so like you tell your friends and family, I want to take a risk. I can't wait. And, 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 and like your uncle or your cousin says, well, you know, Fritz, you're a nice guy. You know that. But I don't think you're capable, you know, which is what they really mean. And then you go along a bit and you ignore that stupid comment and you start, you know, doing your business and and then they tell you the second comment, which is, 
you know, that's a really interesting idea you have. So they concede you're capable, <laughs> but, 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 but they think your idea is interesting. And obviously when someone says something's interesting, what they really mean is that's a stupid idea. Right? That's what they mean, right? That's interesting. Well, that's an interesting dish you've created. <laughs> it means it sucks, right? <laughs> you know, that's, um, <laughs> and, and so like, that's the second thing people tell you is, oh, that's interesting, right? And that's what they told me in China too. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Um, and then the third thing your friends and family tell you, so they agree that you're capable and they agree that your company and ideas isn't stupid, but then they say, wow, you're lucky. <laughs> wow. Oh my God. Like you're successful. You must be lucky. Um, and, and so maybe deep down, you know, in spite of what they thought about your capability and in spite of what they thought about the idea, for some reason you're lucky now. Right. I mean, you know, those are so basically those are the three things that, that you hear every time you take a risk in anything in life. You're a nice guy. That's interesting. And you're lucky. And, you know, I felt that's what I experienced in China. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. Dave? Yeah. So I wanted to ask you guys at uh, some point closed a major investment from Baidu and then, you know, took things, uh, took Juno Republic uh, on NASDAQ. Could you kind of, uh, tell us how, how you kind of uh, landed, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the exit and how how you manage that whole transition. Yeah, so um, so, so obviously, you know, Baidu was a tentpole uh, decision for the company. We were able to um, extract a lot of capital, a key resource, and then Baidu also helped the company in many ways. Obviously, you know, the Chunar. Uh, Culture was a very engineering-driven culture, just like Baidu was, and, and 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 obviously, you know, that Chinese wall I mentioned probably doesn't exist at Baidu at all. So they just promoted us like crazy, um, and then those two things continued to accelerate the business. Um, as I recall, um, so at, at so so uh, uh, so at that time, my co-founder, you know, CC, he uh, you know became the CEO. Um, about a year and a half before the Republic. And um, I think at that time, um, we weren't expecting to go public. We thought it would be four or five years, but it was just really quick because the markets favored, you know, money losing Chinese companies for some reason. Um, and so uh, we had to be very opportunistic. And, um, and, and luckily, even after the IPO, um, you know, our story resonated with the markets. And um, so we, it was a great opportunity. I mean, at, at that time we were, uh, um, what was it? I, I guess we were um, eight years old. So, um, you know, you know, you know, that's the average age of a listed company or, you know, like a tech company that, you know, goes public, right? They're usually between seven and 10 years old, right? So we we're kind of right in the middle there. And it, it was good for our investors or good for employees. You know, we you know we had a currency now that we could buy other companies, and so um, so I, I I thought overall it was pretty good. But but you know uh, you know transitioning from a private company to a public company, you know that you know I mean now we have a bigger obligation to the markets, right? And so we just have an extra layer of you know um, expectation, administration, but also discipline. And so you know it's a good thing. And you know that 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 transition is often. You know, it's a hard one in many respects. And, you know, I've spoken to people over the years that have gone from being a you know a private company to a public company, and they've kind of lamented the fact almost that there it does become almost more than a numbers game. You're constantly meeting with investors, and, and that's the byproduct of going public. But is did you kind of think, you know, okay, so we've become a public company, but I do miss the not only the privacy of being a private company, but just the workload has changed and it's a bit of a drag almost. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that, that we experienced that entirely, but, 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 uh, but, but obviously, um, you know, a private company, like you don't have that extra layer of administration, right? I guess you could say. Um, and also um, as, as, as we all recognize the late stage, private capital markets are very deep. You know, DST, SoftBank, Tiger, all these companies are willing to provide capital, which once 
was only reserved for public market investors. But now, as companies go public later, mm. um, you know, we have these deep pools of, you could say, late-stage growth capital. Um, and probably DST was probably the first to recognize this. And then Tiger jumped on it. And SoftBank you know, is, is, is obviously a big player in this area. And, and of course, there's a few other institutions, too. Um, like KOTU, I guess, would be another one. Insight, stuff like that. Um, um, and, and so those are, so, so meaning it becomes less and less important to go public. Um, but the thing is, you still have small investors, you still have employees and all that sort of stuff. And so the, I, I, I think the way I describe it is a later stage private company, which historically may have gone public, doesn't need to because they have other, um, you know, choices. Um, and, and having said that, I mean, there are some other benefits to going public besides just, um, you know, having a liquidity event. And, and, you know, and, and having your employees understand, you know, and, you know, and maybe there's some reputational advantages as well with, with being a public institution. But, you know, um, you know, the public markets do provide some discipline, you know, like you have to sell your story. Um, and, and it isn't just smoke and mirrors. I mean, yes, it's true that there are some retail investors in the market who you could argue maybe aren't as sophisticated, but, you know, most players in the market are actually large institutions and these are full-time people. They read the reports, they go to focus, right? You know, they read focus wire, they hang out with David in the lobby of the, of, you know, of kind of the hotel to, to, to you know, to, to try to get his secret insights on, on what's going on. And, um, and, 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 you know, you have to kind of like, you know, you know, sell it to them. And so I, I, I think, you know, that discipline, you know, isn't bad. Um, you know, some people, like Jack Ma and Zuckerberg and, you know, say, well, we need dual class shares, you know, because public markets and public market investors are short term, like oriented, right? You know, you know, like, you know, I hear that a lot, right? Like the markets are too short term oriented and therefore we're living quarter to quarter, right? Um, but, what, what, but what I think is funny is those same companies say that, that the markets are short term oriented, but they have a high multiple. Right, and they're so, and meaning they're happy to take a high multiple from a, you know, from public market investors, which by definition implies that they think that the returns of the company are far away. So if a company has a low multiple, it, 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 it's actually implicit in that low multiple that most of the value is going to be realized in the short term. And if you have a high multiple, it means the value is going to be realized in the long term. And so by definition, having a high multiple all these investors are already saying, Hey, I think Alibaba or Facebook or all these companies, you know, their value is going to be created many, many years out. And so therefore I'm, 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 so I'm, 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 so I'm giving you credit for that. And so they want to have their cake in it too, basically is what I'm saying. Do you think, um, Fritz, that there were any mistakes made along the way with tuna? I mean, the, every, every startup makes mistakes, but are there any kind of massive strategic ones that you kind of almost kick yourself over now? Yeah, um, I, I, I think there was a couple of things. Um, you know, we probably, we probably, did, you know, there was, I, I think some people we hired that we should have gotten rid of sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, either they couldn't grow with the organization or well, maybe it was the wrong decision in the first place. And although some of those people are amazing and super capable within our structure, maybe they weren't as amazing capable and maybe we should have made a decision, you know, earlier rather than later um, or, or at least allow them to have a graceful exit. Um, and, and, and so that was probably one thing that maybe we should have acted faster. Mm-hmm. Um, I think secondly, um, in the early days, we thought human resources, we're just going to stick it under finance. <laughs> Meaning our CFO runs HR and we never had an appreciation for, you could say, strategic human resources and how important that was. Um, in fact, maybe the most important function in the company. Yeah, that, that, that's the, yeah, that's an interesting one. That's come up on a couple of our interviews that we've done with people. Is the the, the perhaps the uh, to paraphrase it, the lack of appreciation 
for the human resources department. I mean, last one from me for a little bit. I mean, during that period, you know, the um, the mid two thousands and into the, the the turn of the next decade, there were Western companies that were trying to make inroads into China. I mean, sitting where you were and the success of of, of how Tuna was operating at that time. I mean, how did you view them? Uh, for want of a better word, kind of coming in and trying to seize a piece of the pie? Or did you always sense that it would be the domestic companies, the local-born companies that would, would, would eventually rise to the top? You know, what value do foreign companies add in China, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, it's certainly not money, right? Because China's flush with cash. It, it's certainly not technology because we live in an open-source world and, you know, the textbooks in China or in English, you know, like every computer engineer reads English, you can get a PhD in China today. You know, I mean, you you don't have to speak Chinese, right? Um, Is it management know-how? Maybe a little bit, but, but obviously after the financial crisis, right? You know, like Hank Paulson and Rob Rubin and Bernanke and Greenspan used to be viewed as gods in China. And now the Chinese Mm. think, well, maybe these guys are a bunch of charlatans, right? (laughs) Um, and, you know, rightly so, by the way. Right. Um, and then, um, and, you know, is it, is, is, is it like, is it market expertise? Well, I mean, the Chinese know the market pretty well. Um, so, you know, so, so we have to ask ourselves, you know, what value do foreign companies bring? What genuine value, right? Um, do they have better teams? Well, if it's mostly about execution, you know, you're going to have to, you have to recruit and build those local teams and, you know, to, you know, I mean, to, I mean, to hire an amazing team, you probably have to spend 10 hours with each individual person to know if they're any good because the traditional, and, and keep in mind, you know, one of the big changes we're seeing in the world is how we assess people is just thrown out the window, meaning the traditional ways to evaluate if someone's good or not don't work anymore. So it used to be you went to an Ivy league, you worked for a top tier consulting firm, therefore that's a good predictor of your ability to, you know, kind of achieve things in life. But what we've discovered is that doesn't apply at all in China, you know, and when we look at all the great success stories, none of these guys, none of these guys graduated from a prestigious university in order. They work for like an, an elite bank or consulting firm. Right. And it's so in some ways, um, you know, building teams is a totally local art and, these tools and approaches that we're accustomed to in the West just don't work at all in China. Quick follow-up question on that. I, so, I mean, how did you evaluate that? Because I feel like there's always this need to, <laughs> and like, I, you know, I spent you know, many years in Silicon Valley. What I always thought was funny was the, um, everyone would poo-poo those Ivy Leagues and then they would all go apply to Y Combinator and didn't realize they had just basically, you know, exchanged one validation for another. And like, you know, was there, is there another way you evaluated and hired? Yeah. You know, um, you know, partly is, um, like we need to spend time with people. And so people on the ground, if, if, like if you're born in China and you grew up in China with a college in China, you know, you're probably around a few hundred people that you've spent at least 20 hours with. Right. So you have a pretty good sense. <laughs> so you probably know 20 people who are amazing, right. Just through that process. Right. Um, and I, 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 I think in China, there are more practical, you could say, ways to assess people. One is, you know, super angel endorsements, maybe. You know, there's very accomplished, you know, investors and who are local, you know, like, you know, like Lei Jun from Xiaomi, right? And like if he invests in your company or knows you in some ways he endorses your capability. I think it's a very practical way versus an institutional way. Um, um, so I, 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 I think that's another way, um, you know, and just, um, you know, sometimes, um, you know, luckily in China, so things have changed a bit in China, but, but it used to be, you can just hire people and get rid of them quickly. And so sometimes there's just like AB testing people too. I mean, that was another way, I suppose. And in just a, a really rapid fire way of, of kind of doing that. I, 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 I think, I think those are some very practical ways that, you know, we're able to achieve it in China. 
interesting. So we're running out of time here. So I want to quickly move to, you know, uh, ask how you guys ended up as part of C-Trip. Yeah, so, um, you know, Baidu, so they uh, were a large shareholder and then they continued to buy shares. Um, and so they were a, you know, like the most prominent shareholder in the company, even after we had gone public. And, and then in parallel, we had a nice big fat price war with CTREP um, because cause luckily for us, the public markets kind of award you to burn money to, I guess, gain market share. Um, and, and, and obviously we were very disciplined about it. I mean, Adam Neumann should have you stopped know, you work in China apparently. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, I mean, we had 200 million app downloads, people using engage in the app. And so, I mean, the marketing worked in some ways. Right. Um, um, but it would, but, but, but it meant there was a short-term cost, um, you know, kind of with it, you know, with with the expectation of you know long-term profitability, um, and then, and I think you can make this argument that uh, uh, there became a realization across the board that maybe some consolidation made sense, and it, it didn't start with us. So DD um, merged with a Quiety, so so basically DD was a ten cent backed you know, ride sharing business. And then Quiety was, you know, the Alibaba backed one. And then they merged together because they realized that was a smart thing to do. Um, it happened with Meituan and Dianping. So Meituan, you know, so like, you know, they're, they're like, you know, food delivery, restaurant guide businesses, and then they merged. And then, so it, it, it seemed to be happening across the board. And and, you know, James Long at C-Trip really believed that that was the right strategy. Um, and he convinced Baidu to, um, you know, go along with it, basically. Okay. And as David says, we're running out of time. And um, I was hoping that we'd get onto a, a bunch of stuff about Queen's Road, uh, Queen's Road Capital, which is the, uh, the investment house that you now kind of now run. Give us a sense, if you can, Fritz. Um, you know, you've, for, you know, maybe you have become per, poacher termed gatekeeper or something like that. But you know, you look at the things in a different way now, obviously, because you're an investor. When you're talking to the companies that you're thinking of investing in, what kind of questions are you now asking them? I know this is kind of a, a, an obvious thing to ask, but it's, it's, you often get different answers from different types of investors. So given that you've come through a travel startup with a successful exit and all the various things that have happened with Tuna, now that you've got your new hat on, what are you kind of knowledge are you imparting to your companies that you invest in? And again, as I said, the, the kind of questions that you're asking of them. Okay, yeah, I, 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 guess, I guess that's two parts. So, like, how do I make a decision? And secondly, what value do I add, maybe, to these yeah. companies? Um, yeah, so uh, so to me, first and foremost, it's really the team, the founders. I mean, I really spend time trying to understand what makes them think, how they make their, how did they make their key decisions in life? I, I really need to understand their psychology. Um, I like the joke I like to say, which is true, by the way, is, um, is, is that I think my founder should listen to me about a third of the time and ignore <laughs> me two thirds of the time. Meaning I, I want someone who pushes back a bit, who's punchy, who's an original thinker, who's super educated, uh, who, who actually likes to self-educate themselves. You know, I remember the first time I met Brian Chesky, he had a notebook. He was just taking notes from everyone, you, you know, like the, you know, like the barmaid at Starbucks, he was taking notes, ordering his coffee, you know, just he's taking notes from everyone, just a sponge learning from everyone and you know and, and to me like i like that right so people who are learning like johannes Reck, you know the founder of get your guide and, 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 and an early investor in his company and you know just constantly learning um and, and so i i really want to understand you know deep down who are these founders and, and to me that's the most important thing and it's because i'm an early stage investor and sure we got to think about how big the market is and all that sort of analysis stuff and sure, like I do a bit of that as well, um, but I'm I'm just really thinking, you know, are these guys and girls really good? You know, do they have it? You know, do they have the magic touch? You know, do they like do they have it in them to go on this journey for ten years and fight it out? Do they have the internal intestinal fortitude? 
and strength and willingness to learn and push back. And it's, it's kind of like, and it's, it's, it's a bit of a checklist, but, but these are things that I look for and, and I'm willing to take my time and, 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 I, and I will throw out, I'm willing to lose a deal because I haven't spent enough time with the founder yet. And so, which is fine with me. Um, but you know, that's my process. Um, and uh, so to me, first and foremost, that's at the top of the pyramid. And I think all the other stuff is like ancillary. Yeah. And I've been very lucky with Johannes and Tao to get your guide and like David Sherwood and, you know, Tao Mantaras at Biblu in London and, you know, just a number of interesting founders. Uh, I've, I've been lucky to have, you know, uh, had the chance to invest and work with. Um, the second question is, well, how do I value? Well, you know, very simply, you know, I have a bag of tricks, I guess you could say, right? As an entrepreneur, like we have a bag of tricks and stories and, um, there's a lot of great stories I can share with entrepreneurs. You know, I, 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 I guess that's what you mean about I have experience, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, frankly, I mean, like I have my own personal KPIs. Um, I, 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 I feel I can help founders with resource extraction. That means how can they manage their boards, advisors, partnerships, government relations? How can they think about the external environment? You know, how can they manipulate the media? If they're advantage, you know, it's 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 kind of all that external stuff, and then secondly, you know, um, you know, I, I come from a very, you could say, financial driven background, and so it's, you know, so one of the other things that I can impart on founders is how can we think about, you know, our KPI systems and OKR systems, and you know, you know, kind of that discipline that's needed at certain stages in a company, you know, not too much early on. But then as we grow, we have to you know, kind of build up and add those pieces of discipline. So it's kind of a bit of science. And so like I, it's, it's, it's the one thing that I, I think I can share with founders. And, 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 and I think thirdly, and this is a bit, I, I guess it's, it's a bit, I don't know if it's causation versus correlation, but, you know, I, I, I feel by building up influence with founders, I'm, I'm able to nudge them sometimes, you know, not all, all the time, but you know, help them think outside the box. Yeah. Um, and, you know, how can Alibaba eat your lunch? How can Google hurt you? Or how can Google help you, you know, in ways that your competitors haven't figured out yet? Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking about, you know, I, I, I feel like, I mean, these founders, they're running the business every single day. They're super smart because I've spent time with them, right? And, and so I, I wouldn't invest if I didn't think they were smart. They're capable, they're focused. Um, and so sometimes the things I can do as well, I can help brainstorm, think outside the box a bit and, and, and really be that mentor, you know, and that trusted advisor, you know, to help them get over the finish line. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Very cool. Um, so I wanted to have one of our last questions be a little bit more of a macro uh, question here. So, you know, I, I I think there's a bit of a debate about will China overtake America? And you at one point mentioned the differences between relationship-based and rule-based society. And, you know, I think one train of thought is that, you know, demographics are destiny and China has three times as many people. It's only a matter of time. And, but another is, you know, with the Hong Kong protests and a society that censors and restricts free expression, you know, can you inevitably compete uh, for international talent and the most innovative people that are going to drive a future economy? And, I, you know, I feel like you have a very unique standpoint here, uh, being kind of in the innovation economy and straddling both worlds. What is your opinion? And, you know, I would love to hear your, 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 your thoughts. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think broadly speaking, rules-based systems, which started with the ancient Greeks and then the Magna Carta came along and all this sort of stuff, right? And Thomas Paine and John Locke and whatever, right? I mean, you know, like all that stuff coupled together you know, that's a very deep Western tradition and that seems to scale. It seems to handle complexity, which is why we have an amazing financial markets in the West, right? Because the allocation of capital is one of the most complicated things you can do. Um, and like all that seems to work quite well. Um, and so I, I, I think, you know, I, I would say, I, I think that's going to be one of China's challenges. You know, can they scale? their society and their economic system if it continues to be relationship-based. Um, will China overtake the United States? I, I, I don't know what that means, but um, 
I think on a nominal level, they've probably overtaken the United States already in terms of, you know, GDP probably. Um, GDP per capita, well, that's a totally different animal, right? That's going to take a long time. Um, is it technical superiority? Now, that's what the sole trade war is about, right? It's about technology. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it's about soybeans and selling trinkets in Walmart, right? I think it's all about, um, you know, technology and Huawei and ZTE and, mm. and, and, and maybe 20 other AI companies. Um, and, you know, there is, um, um, I, I, think, I, I think some academic research would suggest that in some of the key areas of deep tech, including AI, but I suppose other areas, you know, Chinese researchers publish a majority of the papers already, um, tons of startups, um, um, and in, in some, in, in, and so maybe you can argue they're in, in some way slightly ahead already. Um, 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 other researchers and academics point out that a, a lot of that leadership is in, you could say, applications as opposed to theory and basic research. Um, so I, I, I think the jury's out, but at the end of the day, um, um, there is some leadership in China already. Um, and, you know, I would throw out that um, I think China has at least 20 nuclear power plants in the queue. What I mean is the government has approved the production of at least, or the manufacture of at least 20 power plants in China, like nuclear power plants. Um, High-speed rail, it's what, 20,000 kilometers of track have been laid already. Um, you know, these two key strategic industries um, are all, you know, built by Chinese supply chain and Chinese engineers. And maybe the first one isn't any good, but, by, but you know, like you go down a learning curve and the fifth one's going to be world beating. And, like, and, and I can't imagine Westinghouse and GE, you know, by building one nuclear power plant a year is ever going to be able to, you know, compete long term. And, and so some of the key strategic industries, I think, um, China probably is going to surpass the United States very soon, if not already. And like high-speed rail is another one. Um, you know, um, um, airplanes, I think that's still kind of in the United States and Europe, I suppose. But you know, but, but, but the Chinese want to build their own jet planes too, right? I mean, they're not stupid, right? Um, and they want to build their own, uh, you know, microprocessors and supercomputers and all that sort of stuff, right? So. Um, and so there's a lot of ambition, you know, so they say, you know, um, um, Evan Osnos um, wrote a great book called Age of Ambition. And, you know, we're in an age where, yeah, yeah you know, China has a lot of ambition. And, and, and so on a macro level, yeah, I mean, um, it's, it's probably going to mean that 996 has to apply to people in the States, too, in spite of what Elizabeth Warren wants all of us to do. You know, and Bernie Sanders, you know, it's probably going to have to be, you know, the other way, right? <laughs> We're going to all have to work a bit harder and save a bit more. And, um, you know, I, I think to compete. And so um, a nice segue into a final question, really, and a very brief one, if you can, uh, Fritz. I mean, you talked about ambition there. What is what is your ambition from now? I mean, you've, you've, you've done the startup, you, you're in an investment house. What's your own kind of personal ambition? On one hand, I, I definitely want to leave the world a better place for my kids. Mm -hmm. um, so it's super important to me. Um, you know, I do have a foundation. We're involved in all sorts of interesting activities to, you know, um, you know help society in various ways. And, um, you know, I'm focused a lot on math and science. That seems to be a big area in, um, in self. We offer a lot of interesting scholarships for, for that, and so we want to continue to do that. So, it's, 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 so you know, my ambition is, hey, you know, like I'm a global citizen. Um, well, you know, I, I, I think um, Noam Chomsky said, I, I, in fact, I heard this today, actually, um, on some other podcast, sorry. <laughs> and like he said something like, like you have to create your legacy, right? It isn't handed to you. Like you have to create it, right? And so... It really affected me as it's a great quote, right? So we have to create it, right? And it isn't just about making money, it's making a contribution and hopefully 
with entrepreneurial and creative skills, we can have some network effects by doing that. And so just, I'm, I'm, so I'm excited about, you know, doing that. And I would love to continue to work with entrepreneurs and, um, you know, you know, it, it, it is interesting, you know, like every time you work with a company, you open the door and you enter a new world because there's new relationships, new personalities, um, new types of people in, in every single company. There's like probably 20 or 30 new people you've met and like you get to know and share experiences and go on ski trips with and all that sort of stuff. And that's just, it's just pretty cool, I think, and really interesting. And because I live in Asia, like I get to do that constantly because in different, whether it's Korea or Burma or Indonesia or China or, 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 or even in Western Europe, I mean, it's just super exciting. Well, that's, uh, that's a great way to end actually. One of more, uh, certainly one of the more profound uh, ways that we've ended the, the podcast with some kind of future gazing things from you know, what you dare I say, what you're giving back to it all. So uh, uh, that, that, that was great. Thanks ever so much, uh, Fritz Demopoulos, for joining us on uh, How I Got Here. So uh, uh, just to wrap up then, so thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of How I Got Here. As I said, our, our guest was Fritz Demopoulos. Uh, we hope that you join us again soon. Uh, thank you very much, and goodbye, everyone. Thanks, David. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check lozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week. Music.